Hello and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I'm John, your host, and I am really happy to have today with me my guest, Winifred Hodge-Rose, and we're going to be talking about stories and Yuletide and all kinds of fun stuff, and it's a delight to have her back with me because I really enjoy speaking with her. Winifred Hodge-Rose really enjoys reading books for children and writing them, too. She's going to be joining us to talk about her first published children's books, Iduna's Trees, but she definitely plans to write more. Winifred has followed the heathen and Germanic pagan religion for more than 30 years and has written two books and many articles about various aspects of the religion. She serves as an elder of the Troth, an inclusive international heathen organization, and as a leader, teacher, writer, and priestess. Her two books are A Heathen Soul Lore Foundation and Heathen Soul Lore, A Personal Approach. And her upcoming book is Oaths, Shield, Frith, luck and weird. Winifred, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. It's a delight to be here. I really enjoy your interviewing style. Uh, thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm really happy to um, have you with me because, uh, you know, we have a dunes trees and it's the holiday season and people are looking for gifts. So I uh, really thought it'd be fun to talk about this delightful children's books. And you know, I think a lot of folk are always looking for children's material with a Norse or Germanic theme. So this is really great. But before we get going into that, we, we have a mouthful of a title called Oath Shield, Frith, Luck and Weird. And uh, that's an upcoming book. And you want to just plug it a little bit uh, as uh, what it's going to be about. And then uh, we'll get back going to uh, Idun's Trees. Yes, very good. Thank you, John. So this is um, the subtitle of this book is Five Essays Exploring Heathen Ethical Concepts, and they're used today. Uh, so um, some of the essays are, are older ones that I've kind of brought up to speed for the modern world, uh, like an essay on Frith and an essay on um, uh, Weird and Schild um, and Oaths. And then I've talked uh, about modern ideas and ideals and how ethics, um, heathen, older heathen ethics can give us some guidance and enlightenment uh, as we navigate the ethics in the modern world. So hopefully that will be released very soon, and I hope it will be of use to people. I think it will too. I have two of the essays, Oaths and Weird and Shield, very good material. So it's going to be great to have them all collected together in a nice handy volume. Yes, I hope so too. And I've also um, uh, made an introduction and a closing chapters uh, that tie them all together to uh, the concept of might and main, personal might and main, or all of our powers tied together and how uh, ethics can support, both support and express those personal powers that we hold inside ourselves. Indeed. Well, uh, we're here to talk uh, as well, and we'll, we'll probably have you back uh, about that book, which would be great. But um, we're here to talk about story writing and Yuletide. I have in my hand this beautiful book called Idun's Trees, a new tale of the Norse goddess Idun. And it's an oversized book. It's got a hardcover. And flipping through it reminds me when I was a little boy and we would have story reading time in our school and we'd all gather in the middle of this big area, all the kids. And of course they would read from the book and then they would open it up and turn it facing us to show the pictures. So yep. that's what this book reminds me of is a big book like that, that uh, it's designed to share with kids uh, as well as be a workbook itself because you have um, activities that kids can do in the book, or maybe they could do them on the side. You've been a, a heathen for uh, and a practicing a Germanic path for so long. So, of course, there's probably a million stories going through your head. And you've read a lot of the Eddas and those sagas and stories. So I'm sure uh, there's a lot of influence. But what inspired you to create, one, a children's book? And how did it come to Edun being the first subject? Um, well, I, I enjoy children's stories myself. I also have um, three grandsons and two grown children, and I loved write, uh, reading stories with them when we were kids, and we also wrote stories and told our own stories. Uh, I had long serial stories going on uh, at bedtime with my kids that I would make up, and I like the stories of Edun. In fact, I, I find her quite an interesting and mysterious figure. From, from more of a, an adult perspective, I like the uh, what um, 
uh, Victor Rydberg, a, a Swedish scholar from about 100 years ago. I like what he wrote about her, even if um, sometimes uh, modern scholars uh, aren't that enamored of him. But he, he has such great stories in the books that he's written. So, so I was spending quite a bit of time uh, with the goddess Idun. And I realized that she didn't particularly care for the fact that what sort of the take home that lots of people who read her myths are, are given is that she was fooled by Loki and uh, uh, stolen away by giant Thiazi. And then Loki had to come and rescue her. And then that's kind of the end of the story. And she ends up feeling kind of dumb over the whole thing. So I thought, well, why don't we tell the next story about her? Uh, you know, in my in my own mind, my own perception of her, which is she learned not to believe everything she was told. Loki had told her that there were more wonderful apples than hers somewhere outside of Asgard so that he could get her out of Asgard and Thiazi could grab her. And she was gullible and believed that. And that's what happened. So this time in this story, Loki wants to uh, steal some of her apples, and Idun is having none of it. And that's kind of the theme of the story. And I guess I shouldn't, I don't know if I should offer spoilers or not, but um, mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of the, uh, the gist of the story, is how Idun handles this next attempt by Loki uh, to get hold of her apples. Um, but a lot of other things come in there, too, including a, a toad who insisted on being a big part of the story. <laughs> I like the toad. <laughs> yes, and, and the toad has a poem about him at the end of the book, too, as a bonus. It's a great poem. I like toad. I want to see more stories of toad. Yeah, well, he, he may he may make his appearance. And, and the first time he came up, he was a she, and now he's a he. And so we'll see see what toad wants to do. Mm, okay. um, but uh, in addition, see, I tried to put a lot of other little subtle things into the book besides telling a good story or in addition to that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of them is, is a few things about nature. I have the phases of the moon. Mm -hmm. I showed about, I have pictures about how toads develop from tadpoles or, or toad poles, as we call them. And then also how, you know, a little more about how apples grow and then I also have um, activities. Forrest Hawkins made some wonderful drawings for this book, and those are left as black and white so that um, so that children or adults, if they want, can uh, can color them. And those those are wonderful additions to the book. Definitely, I'm glad you brought uh, you brought up Forrest because I was going to definitely include that. And in, uh, I love his his drawings here on page for your reference there's a picture of uh, Edun there and I just love the expression on her face so he's really good with uh, creating expressions and there's other ones where you know it's just uh, they're fun and delightful and uh, he did a wonderful job uh, in in the illustrations he did and, and that same uh, illustration is on the cover of the book in color which is really nice too oh um, yeah I also have a couple of places where I ask the children to draw their own picture. I show a picture of a long haul, and I suggest that on the opposite page they draw uh, their own picture of Frigg's Hall, which that's talking about. And I'm trying to remember what else. There were a couple of, oh, yeah, a picture of themselves rolling off a haystack, mm -hmm. dropped on a haystack and rolled off if, if kids would like to do that. So, so there's several things in there, as I said. And then I also put in the artist's and the date of, uh, because I have it illustrated with a lot of old paintings about Idun in the Norse myths and other um, relevant uh, topics to the storyline. And I put the author's names and the dates, and I thought, you know, a little art appreciation wouldn't come amiss either uh, for the children, a little bit about art history and so forth. Definitely so, not. And the ones, the, the images that you have that are of color, they just are so vibrant on these pages. Yeah, I want to say a, a word about the color because the book is available uh, in color and in black and white. The black and white can be bought uh, from Amazon and other uh, booksellers because it's cheap enough that the added distribution fees don't make it too expensive. The color book is expensive. Uh, very little of it is coming to me of the price. And I have it available only on Lulu because that keeps the price to about half of what it would be if it was in wider distribution. I, but I am sorry that even so, it's still a rather expensive book uh, to get the color version. And I sort of want to give my apologies, but there really isn't anything I could do to make it cheaper than it already is. Oh, but, it's, but it's worth it because the size of it and the amount of the photos, I mean, every page has something on it. 
and it's just a really delightful and it's a delightful story so when before we move on I, there were two uh, little points i wanted to make about the book sure um, one of them is uh, the dedication that i wrote to my grandsons and i and i want that dedication to go out to everyone and and what i wrote is that uh, so these are my young grandsons and i wrote may they and their generation remember the old tales worth remembering and tell new tales of their own that are worth knowing and that's kind of my whole message with the storytelling that the old tales are worth knowing and there's it's worth getting um, you know telling new tales and so that was at the beginning of the book and then at the end of the book I wanted to say something because I write a little bit about saga the goddess saga mm-hmm. and I and here I stick in a little bit of philosophy for kids or <laughs> theology or something like that um, and I talk about how the sim- saga's symbol is pouring a drink in the myths it's mead but I didn't want to discuss mead in a children's book so I called it water and I ask the question at the end of the book why do you think that pouring water is saga's symbol and I suggest is pouring water kind of like pouring out a story filling our minds with knowledge and new ideas like filling a cup with water and so I end the story with with this question Um, and that maybe is a nice segue into what I wanted to discuss about stories yeah what can we do today to tell the stories of our gods and goddesses? Yeah, and uh, as I begin with that, I'll, I'll uh, make a quotation from uh, Carl Jung, the um, great psychologist, who, uh, that I always like this quotation. He says, dream the myth onward and give it a modern dress. And that's, that's uh, a lot of what I'd like to try to do here. So some of the things I wanted to say about stories is to point out how completely fundamental they are to our religion and all the other religions too. They're all founded on stories, uh, mythical stories, and stories that give us lessons about ethics, about spirituality, that give us examples of how to live our lives. Um, And sometimes uh, the examples are the opposite. And some of our uh, myths, this is what not to do at home, kids, some of those myths. But nevertheless, they, they give life to ideas and to history. And, you know, think about how they undergird all of the forms of art. It's not only verbal stories, but people write songs about stories and they create sculptures and paintings and uh, even folk dances and theater and, and drama puppets are, are, you know, in Asia. Um, and I know in Greece when I lived there, Years ago, there's traditional puppet shows that show, you know, the great dramas and sagas of their people, and those those were are and were very popular, and they and they carry the seeds of of cultural continuity with them. Uh, children are very conservative in what they believe and pay attention to, in in the sense that the children's games go back for centuries, and children's stories go back for centuries, and and bring, you know, something of the seeds of the past into the present. And I, I love that quotation from Jung because uh, the idea is to, to keep all the old stories and keep telling them, but then go on like I tried to do with the Idun story and tell a new one that kind of follows on from the old one or learns from the consequences of the old one. There was There's one story that I want to talk about for a minute because I think it gives an example of exactly what I would hate to see happen to stories. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So years ago, when I was in a bookstore, I looked at a comic book that I think was was made from a movie or related to a movie, which I never saw. And it was about Beowulf. So Beowulf is a great, splendid hero in um, Germanic culture. And this, what this comic book did that I absolutely hated was turn all the characters on their heads. So, so Beowulf is supposed to be an example, you know, of someone who is who is courageous and generous and a good ruler and a good support to others, uh, you know, a, an upright, ethical, Germanic warrior and king. And in this comic that I read, uh, Beowulf arrives in the hall of King Hrothgar, and this hall of King Hrothgar has been tormented for years by Grendel, the monster Grendel from the marsh. As soon as Hrothgar gets there, the, the wonderful queen, Welthiau, who is supposed to be the uh, kind of example of what a, a great queen should be, she starts to try to seduce Beowulf 
and her husband is portrayed, uh, good old King Hrothgar, a, a very good fellow in the original story, was portrayed as as a sodden drunk who couldn't um, rule his kingdom or do anything successfully. And so Wealthia wants to run away with Beowulf. And then it, it, it just goes downhill from there. They conspire together. And then I think, if I remember correctly, eventually when Beowulf faced Grendel's mother in the swamp, um, she actually turned him into a dragon. And then his faithful retainer, Wiglaf, was supposed to go and kill the dragon. And I, where is the moral to this story? I mean, where are the heroes that you want to model yourself after? Mm-hmm. Um, where are the heathen values, that, you know, that should be learned from a story? I understand about anti-heroes, and I understand about catharsis, uh, where where you read about a terrible event and to try to kind of overcome similar difficult things that are inside yourself. Those all have value. Tragedies have value, you know, and, and challenging circumstances have value. But I just could find no value in telling the story this way with, with every everything turned backwards. I don't know if you have any comment about that, John. Um, I think sometimes to try to create new interest, I think people try, I think they do go a little bit extreme. And and I think if you lose the, if you're going to retell a story such as Beowulf or uh, something else, uh, I don't, I, I don't think it's unuseful to uh, maybe s- switch things up a little bit. But you don't want to lose the essence of the real story in it. I think it's very important that you maintain at least the structure, the main structure, even if you want to change the window dressings a little bit, you know, for instance, especially if you're going to be illustrating it and for a, for a modern audience. And, and I get it, you know, sometimes those stories were told in a prose or uh, a style that is not the, the style of storytelling we have today. But I think uh, in translating it to a modern audience or a modern time, or even, even if you updated the story, I think you, I think, it's important to to maintain the main message and the main element, like you said. Right, right. And uh, yes, I completely agree with retelling stories today. And I, I've read, you know, there are quite a few of them, and that's it's good to see. I, one one I that I enjoy is called Rune Marks by um, Joanne Harris uh, that brings uh, Norse myths into a different context. And um, she's written some other books along those lines, and there are many others. And you know, I also understand that uh, in, in modern times, the anti-hero is someone that people can relate to and, you know, sort of learn from and, and, and grow uh, by following uh, the anti-hero's path. And I'm not objecting to that either. But but I still think, uh, you know, as we're both saying, there needs to be some some kind of value other than just scandalous gossip mongering or something you know to the story <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and certainly stories about people like uh, odin or loki uh, you know are going to be very complex and uh, with with a lot of different uh, dark and light threads running through them you know and, and that's fine too well not to <clears throat> beat that too far to death i just uh, kind of wanted to make a point that i like retelling the stories but but as you say john let's Let's keep it, some of the threads, that the, the, some of the point of telling the story, you know, to be communicated in a new way for a modern audience. There are so many complexities that the mythology that we have or the, the gods and goddesses that can tell fun stories. I mean, it doesn't mean uh, we don't know what the real backstories are. For instance, you know, how was Theazi as, as a father or as a husband, uh, you know, yeah, well, that opens a whole new can of worms, John. You may regret saying that because <laughs> because I'm I'm in the process. I have been for years of writing a novel about Grither, the the mother of Vidar, who in my story is the cousin of Skadi and the niece of Fiazi, and and so it brings in uh, many threads uh, from those stories, and and a lot of my material I get from Rydberg, as I mentioned before. Um, and according to his researches, which I realize modern scholars are not generally in agreement with, but I followed his threads and he's got some very interesting points. Anyway, he he believes he traced Idun uh, to be the half-sister of Voland and, um, and also the swan maiden uh, who came uh, with her 
the other two swan maidens to Voland and his brothers in Wolf, Wolfdales. And, and furthermore, and I know this sounds astounding, but I spent three years tracing the roots and there's some, some substance to it that actually Thiazi and Voland are kind of analogs of each other in the mythology. So that if Thiazi is, is Idun's um, half-brother, and also they were lovers for years while uh, they were in Wolfdales, then it's no wonder Thiazi wants Idun back, you know, once they've sort of gone off on different mythological tracks. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, de- I developed that. And then uh, I also have Thiazi as a sorcerer in my story, and he's fascinated by Idun's power to create somehow the life-giving apple. So, so that's kind of a, a motive running through there, too. Not to go too off, uh, too far on that, but see that's what I mean. That it's just the the world is full of stories that can be told, and and I just wish I had more time to work on them. Well, I I hope that it actually inspires others to tell more stories. Sometimes I, I think that um, there's a an opposition or resistance to new stories in favor of the Eddas. Like, oh no, we can't. These these are the stories. You can't tell something different about the gods or goddesses because this is how it was and and as with Idun's trees there's a whole different story to be told and it's beautiful that it can be told and it should be yeah this is uh, i mean my response to people who say that and and i totally agree with honoring the sort of the foundational aspects of the myths as we know them you know the ancient myths as we know them we should we should always have those as our touchstone but at the same time, those were stories told by people who lived then. I mean, where did they get those stories from? They, they got them they got them from the same place that we can go to get stories today, namely through through both belief and folklore and their own imaginations and their connection with their deities. And we can do that too. They they the old folks weren't the only ones who could do these things. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I'm wholehearted on on that. That's and I and I look forward to a lot of the creative stories and the so so many cool things. Yep, indeed, I agree. So, do we want to perhaps move on uh, to a bit about Yule? I think that's a great thing um, because uh, Yule is a great time for storytelling. Exactly. <laughs> and I imagine that uh, probably a lot of these stories were created probably in the winter times when there was very little light and not much to do when you've got, you know, many feet of snow blanketing the ground and you're just huddled into a hut trying to stay warm for the winter time. Exactly. That was the storytelling time. And furthermore, you can sit there and you can do your knitting and your whittling and uh, whatever else that needs to be done during the winter. And it goes better if you're telling stories and singing songs. Yeah. Well, let me uh, add a little note to that th- that thought too, because here's another example of the tie in between our religion and and stories or imaginings. Because I recently uh, published an article in um, Iduna, our journal, called "Renewable Energy Installations as Jotun Shrines," and I'm suggesting the idea of understanding um, wind turbines and hydropower dams and wave harvesters and all the other forms, uh, sol- solar arrays and so forth, as as doorways between um, Midgard and uh, the realm of the Jotnar, who work with the powers of the earth and in ancient times were considered to be very disruptive and, and overly powerful. But in these days, we're trying to make use of those powers so that we can back off from uh, polluting forms of energy. And so you know, I'm kind of telling the story that, that we can, you know, regard a wind turbine as as the doorway to a giant or a giant expressing its powers through through this turbine. And I use the example of Fenya and Menya and the, the Grotta Mill um, as an example of, you know, how we can bring that story forward into the modern time. Um, I don't want to go on too long about it, but I just think that's a nice link between a story idea and the practice of our religion today. I love it. Feels like to me we're in the Yuletide season, but... Um... You wrote some really nice things about Yuletide, a nice essay and other things, and people are coming into that. 
And I know there's a lot of posts on different heathen and uh, groups and just in general about how how do I practice Yuletide? What are some traditions? How did they do it in the olden times? Uh, and, and then there's also a lot of misinformation out there, certain memes that go about, and, and sometimes people just pick up on that. But what are your thoughts about the Yuletide season? And, how, and, uh, and let's go through some of the, the things that you suggest for practicing today. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to do that. I, I just, uh, just uh, I think yesterday or the day before, posted um, an article on my website. These are ideas for celebrating heathen yuletide. And one of the things, you know, you talked about, well, when does it begin? Uh, so I just was going to mention a couple things. I mean, one, one thing I like uh, in the old English calendar, the month before Yule was what is now December, uh, was called Era Yola, or before Yule. And then they had the Yule days, and then there was after Yule, or after Yule would have been January. So in other words, Yule was so important that it had two months named in reference to it. And the same thing uh, was the case for the summer solstice uh, for Letha, uh, that had um, Era Letha, and then Letha was midsummer, and then after Letha. So it's a nice um, balanced picture of the wheel of the year uh, with the heavy months surrounding Yule and Letha, uh, kind of keeping the wheel turning. And I, I like that picture. And I also, one of the suggestions I made in my essay is, uh, like you mentioned in California, you've got warm weather. And I know I know that um, heathens and, uh, and others in, um, for example, Australia and New Zealand, it feels funny to be celebrating uh, the Yule customs in the middle of summer for them. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if my idea is that that we give equal importance to Yule and Letha and in fact celebrate them in similar ways, which I'll offer some ideas for that in a minute, so that it would be easy enough to switch the weather theme between Yule and Letha for people who are in the Southern Hemisphere without really changing the emphasis on, you know, family gatherings and games and songs and, uh, you know, time to spend on your spiritual experiences and so forth. And I kind of like that idea of, of a wheel turning, not only the wheel of time, but the wheel of the world turning and all of us fitting into our right places on there. I like that aspect of the essay as well. I was like, because I, I try to do that because I have some friends in Australia and we do a study group together. And, and occasionally, you know, as we start talking about the seasons, I'm very conscious of including how they're practicing in the Southern Hemisphere. They could do. They could decorate a summer tree in December. You know, a summer tree in December, and then do a Yule tree at Letha uh, in the summer uh, solstice. What for us is the summer solstice, solstice, and would, for them it is the winter one. So, so yeah, those are just ideas that I think uh, would fit nicely into the heathen idea of the seasons as a wheel of time, and add uh, you know the modern perspective of the of the world as a wheel of space. So you mentioned that there was before Yule and after Yule. Were there things that you learned that they did to lead up to the Yule month? Or was um, it just, that was just a matter of, well, this is the month before Yule? <laughs> yeah, and it may well have been the latter. Um, I At the end of the article that I have on my website, I offer a, f a few resources, uh, one of them being Ben Wagoner's uh, third volume of Our Troth, Heathen Living, where he has a lot of information about heathen Yule, and which I would recommend, uh, you know, for people who want something more historically based. But one thing I was going to talk about a little bit here is the this lovely new custom, as far as I'm aware, uh, heathen custom of sun weight, that's been discussed quite a bit on, uh, excuse me, on Facebook discussions and so forth. And it seems uh, similar to uh, some of the Christian customs of Advent, which years ago when I was Christian, I always very much enjoyed. So it's basically lighting a candle for each of several days before Yule, and I'll talk about the number of days in a minute, and having some kind of a ceremony or a meditation. I think, again, tying back to stories, this is a wonderful time to um, tell or read a story to children, if you have any children in your life, and even for adults to become more familiar with some of our foundational stories. I'm making a, a suggestion to modify this sun weight. I, I love this custom, but I'm, I'm making a suggestion to turn it more toward a heathen perspective rather than an Advent perspective. Um, so Advent is waiting 
for a savior. And for us, what we're doing is celebrating the turning of the year, along with uh, this being a time when the ancestral spirits are closer to us and perhaps the uh, deities are closer to us too. It's a sort of a liminal time. So my suggestion is when practicing the sun weight, instead of having all of the days that you decide to do that occur before Yule and finishing on right on the solstice, my suggestion is to have the solstice day in the middle of sun weight, so that if you decide you want to do sun weight for nine days, for example, usually you would do it in the evening, so you would do four evenings before the solstice, and then do the solstice day celebration, and then four evenings after it. So it's kind of like going up and down a hill rather than going up and up and up, and then you crash and nothing else happens after the solstice. The, the Sunway tradition was kind of t- taking off out of Sweden, and uh, I kind of got wind of it a few years ago, and uh, I started promoting it and uh, did a little podcast about it as well. And mm-hmm. and it's, they do it on Thursdays because Thursday is a special day for Sweden mm-hmm. practitioners, uh, according to the person who created Sunweight. And uh, so that's why they do that. But yeah, uh, and the, the beauty of it is, is it is a very flexible, like yes. all traditions where wherever you are, you always have uh, our traditions that are um, region specific or people specific, group specific, community. So it's always a great way to um, be flexible and change that. And that's a, that's a great idea. You can shift it around. You can add days and, and like you said, put, the, put it in the middle and go up and then have the solstice and then have the afterglow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of, uh, I kind of envision it as leading up to the solstice is, is you're, you're making a journey into a spiritual world or opening yourself more to the metaphysical aspects of our world, um, the spiritual aspects. And, and so that goes up to the solstice. And then the, the days after the solstice are the time when you begin to reintegrate yourself into Midgard, but bringing with you what you gained from your travels in the in the other world. Yeah, and I, I just uh, I really enjoy the sunweight because uh, you light the candles and you, you do a rune poem or call in energies of a room. But it's a family thing because you can create the candle holders for it, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And like you suggest, you know, you tell stories. It can be a really family centric thing. And like you said, even with people without have a friend over, have some friends over and tell stories to each other and enjoy a nice evening contemplating and meditating on the Yule season and all that. Yeah, I'll I'll just uh, mention as sort of a list some of the things I describe in the article that we can add or, you know, use to create our our modern heathen traditions. You know, I list all all sorts of festivities, including, you know, making use of uh, like Zoom or Skype or ways of uh, long distance. I mean, we have a family reunion during Yuletide, an extended family reunion uh, over Zoom that we keep open for several hours because we were scattered across many time zones. And, uh, you know, family members can drop in and, you know, have their meal together while they're chatting over Zoom or open presents or just hang out and talk. And so we shouldn't limit ourselves uh, to physical, physically present friends and family, but, you know, expand, expand it around the world since we have the technology for that. And I also listed games as being something very traditional, whether it's um, board games or sports games that you play outside, card games, children's games, games like charades are, are very traditional for centuries around this time of year in England. And those those are great ways uh, to, you know, do something different than just your everyday stuff and do it with other people that you care about. And those two can be done over Zoom, for example. Um, I play board games and card games with my grandsons who are a thousand miles away, especially during the holiday season. And it's a lot of fun. You just, uh, I, you know, do a few modifications and it works just fine. And then meditations and rituals, as you mentioned, and rune casting, other kinds of divination and spay working. Those are all um, powerful things to do at this time of year during the Nights of Yule. Um, the spirits are very close to Midgard, and by the same token, Midgard is very close to uh, the other worlds. And these, all of these activities, uh, I think, flow more smoothly and easily when we do them during this time. And then, of course, Sumble is a big one, and that, that was traditionally done during Yule with a boasting of well, there's so much going on with Sumble. I wrote a little bit about it in my article. Uh, ben Wagner's got a whole chapter on that in his book. 
and others, uh, there's other stuff online about Sumble. And then I mentioned gift giving. That's another thing we've done in our family is not give all the gifts on one day. And that's a nice thing about having you as a season rather than uh, just one day. And I have some suggestions. You know, we could give some gifts on solstice to acknowledge the heathen custom and then other gifts on Christmas Day to fit in with the, the general pattern around here. Or gifts could be given during the sunlight sessions, sunlight sessions. And perhaps if you're celebrating for a number of days and if there's a number of people in your family, you could give everybody's one person's gift on one day. And it's kind of nice for kids to learn that to decouple the giving and getting so that they can focus on giving. And perhaps a child, for example, could give all of the child's gifts to their family members on one day while not receiving their own. That would just be the day for them to give their gifts to whoever they want to give them to and have, you know, have this joy and power of giving something without being distracted by what are they getting from everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's a great idea, I think. So, yeah, there's all kinds of fun ways that you can spread out the gift giving. And, and it's so nice because then you don't get this this uh, post-Christmas crash and the, and the grumpy tempers and, um, you, you know, it, you just build up so much of a anticipation and then it's all over in a few hours. And then what? You know, it's really fun to stretch it out and, and have things to look forward to for several days on end. It's less wrapping paper to pick up at the end of the morning, too, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Well, you know, that's something else we do in our family is use uh, uh, swatches of fabric and like old uh, lace doilies or pretty pretty things like that. And we wrap uh, the presents with those. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. That's lovely. Um, and songs is another thing, too. I was just going to bring up songs. Do you All have right. a chapter in there on singing? And isn't and caroling and singing is such an important part of this this season, it seems. You know, people, small groups used to go around and carol at houses. I did that as a kid. Mm -hmm. Me and some of my friends, uh, sometimes we would just go and stand outside a door, just like in a movie, and sing songs. <laughs> yeah, um, yep. we, we did that too. And it's nice to go to uh, uh, elder homes and hospitals and so forth. Uh, many churches do that. Yes. When I was a Christian years ago, I, I sang in the choir and also did caroling. And and uh, when I converted to heathenry, that was the thing that hurt the most to leave behind was all the music. And so that's when I started writing heathen words to Christmas carols and uh, to other tunes. And I have I have a lot of heathen worship songs. Some I've written to tunes uh, by others and some where I've made the tunes up myself. And I, I know Diana Paxson has uh, created many songs of her own and there are so many other people. So we ha we do have wonderful heathen music uh, or songs, um, and I'd like to see us use them more and, of course, make many more. And one thing um, to note is a lot of the Christmas songs or the Christmas carols that we that we sing were based on like pre-Christian tunes and traditional songs that were already out in the pub songs and, and songs that groups sang uh, already. So a lot of times the songs that we sing anticipating you know the birth of the savior were really based on tunes that had nothing to do with that they were just reused yep 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 and we can, we can do that now too so i think that's that's a really good thing to uh build into it and well yesterday was thanksgiving and we were at my daughter's house and my grandson is learning guitar you know and he, he was playing a few songs on the guitar and then we all started singing other songs that we knew that things that he couldn't play but um, you know, it just segued into a song fest. And, and oh, and he, he's very good. He and his mom and I, uh, we sing rounds, which are always a lot of fun. And I think a 10-year-old being able to keep up with the music well enough to sing in rounds is pretty impressive. So this wasn't a heathen thing, but it was a family thing that was really special with the music. I know a lot of people, they're always looking for a type of a, a ritual or a structure. And you wrote a a little pamphlet, which is available on Lou, called Mother's Night Bloat and Yule Celebration with Heathen Yule Songs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I um, love the whole, I love the whole thing. And I, I really look forward to maybe being able to utilize it in a small group setting because uh, you have so many wonderful poems and you structure it well going through. You, you, you break it out so that 
more than one person can participate. And I just love it. Tell, tell me about writing this little pamphlet and, and then some of the songs that you created for it. Yeah, well, the, the model for this Mother's Night bloat is um, it's pretty much the same structure that uh, that I use in our with our kindred uh, that I've used for decades. Uh, so I just uh, and so I, I write different rituals using using that general structure for different seasons and purposes of the year. And we, we like very much. There's actually only three of us as regular members in our kindred, although sometimes other people come. But so, so I write it so that all of us uh, switch around as to who's mm-hmm. saying what. And, and I really like that. One of the things I loved, uh, when I was Christian, I was Episcopalian and in a very high church mode. And so the, the choral work that we did, um, you know, went back to very old traditions. And one of them was antiphonal chanting or singing, where one side of the choir would uh, intone or sing uh, one line from one of the verses of the Psalms. And then the other side of the choir would come in with a second one. And you, you practice it until you can follow each other so well that it sounds like it's one voice doing it all, which really attunes you to everyone else who's singing with you, both on your side of the choir and the other side of the choir. You have to be completely aware of their breath rhythms and the rhythms of their body, you know, in order to attune your singing altogether. Um, and it was always such a powerful experience that went way beyond just the, the music itself. Um, and so I like to kind of try to capture that in, with this, um, you know, sharing the readings uh, between different people and trying to, to flow along together. It, it really has a lovely effect of we're not just individuals standing there, uh, you know, being in a space where worship is happening. We're, we're keeping the wheel rolling, I guess I could say again. It's a very Yule-like imagery. The, the wheel just keeps rolling smoothly from one to the next of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone gets to be a participant rather than just waiting for their turn to. Exactly. Exactly. You don't tune out when you're not talking. You you're tuned into the next person speaking because you know yours is coming up and you you have to be on the ball. Yes. You know? <laughs> so yeah. So that's that's kind of what went into that. Well, it's it's a lovely pamphlet, and I think a a great asset to have. Uh, they can just do it on their own or with their family, or it would be a great way you could even do a Zoom or, yeah, absolutely. Uh, with something like this, because it gives everyone the opportunity to be a part of it in a, in a very special way. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, it works fine over Zoom. We've, we've done that before. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago during um, COVID, I, I had, we did this bloat uh, for Troth members. I had mentioned it on online and we probably had maybe eight or 10 Troth members joined us for this particular ritual ensemble. And it was really beautiful and it worked well. The only pro- the only thing it's, it is hard to do over Zoom is the singing because yes. there's a lag. And so it sounds horrible, actually, if everybody's singing it together. If, if you want to sing, the way to do it over Zoom is to have the song leader singing where everyone can hear and have everyone else have their mics off and sing along, you know, in their own spaces. Yes, and, and <laughs> that, that definitely is out. better. <laughs> in the back of your booklet, I noticed that there are some with some very recognizable tunes, the Holly and the Ivy, for instance. Uh, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen is the main tune. But then you you have a couple that I haven't heard of, the Sussex Carol, or maybe I have, I just don't recognize it by the name. Uh, what, which ones did you decide that you wanted to create these for? Or did you just pick a whole bunch of them? And these are just a few of the selected ones. Well, I, you know, I pick tunes that when I hear them or, and sing them, um, kind of wake up some heathen connection in, in my heart. And then, or at least that's one, one way that I make the song. So sometimes I, I pick the tune, which seems evocative to me of something. And then I uh, write the words for it. And one example of that uh, that I don't have in here is, is a, a song to Heimdall, where the original is a song to uh, the angel Gabriel, you know, blowing his trumpet in the heavens. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. and, and just the uh, the imagery and the music were like, oh, wow, this would be so cool for Heimdall. You know, so I, I wrote a song for Heimdall to that tune. Other times I, I write a song and then I hunt for a tune that seems to go with that song. And sometimes I make my own tunes, which are always kind of eerie. <laughs> so, mm. That's the music that comes out when I do this. You're channeling the other world. That's what you're channeling. Well, I probably, yeah, there's one song I didn't put in here to the, the Irminsul image or, you know, the world tree that I wrote in German and in English. Uh, that's to the tune of, um, what is it there? Now I can't think of it. 
But anyway, it, it, it all comes out kind of eerie, but I like it. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, this is fantastic. I appreciate all of your resources. So I thought I might sing a couple of these less familiar songs. If your voice feels up to it, I think that would be wonderful. Yeah. If people understand this is not a concert performance, this is just uh, me singing this so that uh, you maybe have a chance to pick up on the tune if you'd like to sing the song. I love it. Mm-hmm. So I will sing the Sussex Carol. All right. And in my book, it's uh, called Sunna's Wheel, The Turning of the Year. And you mentioned this could be used um, for the, the summer solstice as well. That's because... correct. Yes. It's written for both of them. Oh, and I should give just a little background uh, because I, I read in um, Jacob Grimm's uh, Teutonic mythology about a custom uh, long ago in, in Northern Europe where people would wrap wooden wheels uh, with straw and set them alight and then roll them down hills to celebrate uh, the solstices. And I thought, oh, this is a wonderful image. And so that was kind of what sparked the words to this song. But we don't recommend that in the city or in a drought. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in any place that's dry and dangerous. But so instead of rolling the wheel, you can sing a song about rolling the wheel. <laughs> okay, here we go. Oh, sun, now bright your turning flame rolls down the hills where gods once came. They come again, their mighty names are beams of light from sun as flames. Come one, come all unto the call. Come gods, come goddesses and folk all. O sun, a clear your radiant might has marked our deepest wisdom sight. Midwinter, midsummer, gladness and tears, we turn the corners of all our years. Come one, come all unto the call. Come gods, come goddesses and folk all. O sun, a shining flame of our soul, enkindled and lightened we are made whole. The need for smoke of summer does heal, while you Lord's blessing brings us weal. Come one, come all unto the call. Come gods, come goddesses and folk all. O sun, a golden strength of the land, we reach toward you with upraised hands. Our light of life, our sigil of might, your power shines holy in heathen sight. Come one, come all unto the call. Come gods, come goddesses and folk all. So that's the summer's wheel. I love that. Oh, that sounds I wonderful. Love, I love the tune. And, and for people who um, know anything about music, I, I just note that there's actually a change of rhythm or of time in the, in the chorus. Mm -hmm. So they don't think I'm singing it wrong. <laughs> um, it's wonderful. I love it. Um, and then I can sing Uller's uh, uh, Yule Gift, because that's probably not such a familiar tune either. And I should note that I, when I put the names of the tunes in here, people can look those up and find a performance of the original tunes on YouTube and learn the tune that way. Now, there's six verses to that. Do you want to sing them all or maybe just the first three? Yeah. Uh, how about the first two? Or, well, I'll, sing uh -oh. the first, I'll sing the first three. I was hoping you would do Uller's Yule Gift because uh, I like Uller. And by the way, I found that uh, some um, snow lodge in Colorado, I think, I can't remember, has, has that song on their website as part of their winter fest. That's cool. my words to the song. Oh, really? How neat. Yeah. Okay, here's Uller's Yule Gift. Forth we go into the driving snow. Yule tree seek we, yule tree lofty. Forth we go. You logs might and main will bring with you thy blessing needles green into the fire's glow. Cold winds blow, sun is sinking fast, winds are whipping round our heads, cold winds blow. So our hearts are filled with bread, where are we now, not can we see amidst the blowing snow. Look you there, footprints in the snow, crisscross patterns, no shoe sign, look you there. Mighty strides a man is taking forth into the forest. Keep his steps, will show us where. Okay, and I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I love the words, and it's going to take a little practice to get used to the, the changing. Yeah, the, the tune is, is a bit challenging, and again, you can hear it online and to learn a little better if you, if you want to. Oh, I um, love the way you sang it. Yeah, it's kind of lively. You know, it's kind of like I can see Uller kind of swooshing up you know, on skis or snowshoes. And um, oh, 
I, I will just uh, sing one verse of the Boar's Head Blessing. Is that a tune that's kind of familiar or not? Um, it's a quick song. Uh, the chorus, I think, is especially fun. Uh, and it's something that can be sung by itself uh, as, a, as a blessing. You know, this could also be used as a meal blessing. And the, the words could be changed a little bit. But it's a song that would have been sung in the, in the Lord's Hall as you're bearing in these uh, whole procession of feasting uh, foods, you know, for the high holiday. So I'll, I'll just sing that. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, maybe not. The boar's head and hand bear. I guess. Let's not push it. <laughs> I may have, yes. But I'll just sing the chorus. Odin, and Thor, and Ingvi, Frey, Frigga, Freya, bless this day. It's a nice uh, little thing to sing, you know, when you're sitting down around your meal or something. Well, yeah, and uh, that itself is just a nice little chant that you can break out to in any sumble or bloat as well. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well, thanks for singing what you could. Uh, yeah, I don't want to push your voice too much. People can, like you said, find notations of the tunes online somewhere. But first, they have to get the booklet, and that's available on Lulu, isn't it? Is it also available on Amazon? or? No, it's only available on Lulu, but also the um, the bloat and the words of the song are, are available on my website as well. I, I try to have everything I write available on my website, even if it's in a book, because I, I don't want to limit what I offer to people who can afford to buy the books. And I'll have a link to that in our show notes as well. I'll mention that the .net is in honor of Frigg and her weeding. <laughs> Winifred, thanks so much for taking the time to, out of your day to speak with us about Edun's Trees, a new tale of Norse goddess Edun, and that's by Winifred Hodge-Rose and Forrest Hawkins. We appreciate you sharing this story, and I hope it does inspire new stories. And, of course, your, your essays on ideas for heathen Yuletide celebrations available on HeathenSoulLore.net, uh, the upcoming book, Oath Shields, Frith, Luck, and Weird, and of course your Heathen Soul Lore books are also available, and you're a busy person, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, and a happy Yuletide to you. Well, thank you so much, John. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate your podcast and all that you do for Heathenry, too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please have a look at the show notes for links and well, notes. Podcast is available from Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and other podcast catchers. Feedback and reviews are greatly appreciated. Please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at @weirdgifts1 and on Facebook at, at @giftsoftheweird and email me at giftsoftheweird.com. Thanks and have a great day.